documentaries, history, insights, interviews, chefs deep dive. And welcome to Ship's Deep Dive. And we've got a guest. Yep, this guest, he's been on everything. Proctor Who, take, check this out. I always get this up. Check this out. Take your seats. He is podcast royalty, John Aitken. I always get messed up as well, mate. Don't worry. I don't know which one I'm recording any any day. <laughs> Too many pods. You start to go a bit mental. It's ironic we've picked a raise ahead for that, isn't it? I, I won't be surprised. Like, um, <laughs> Spotify will be giving you a ring for a hundred million deal like they did with Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, me and Joe Rogan. Peas in a pod, mate. <laughs> <laughs> get, all the, get all the stars on. <laughs> oh, dear. So this this week on Shep's Deep Dive, I wanted to do a film, which not a lot of my mates had seen. So I rang up John, gave him a nod, and said, do you fancy doing a Razorhead with David Lynch? Believe it or not, Eraserhead is my most spiritual film. When things are concrete, very few variations in interpretation. But the more abstract a thing gets, the more varied the interpretations. That's the beauty of it. It's just like life. You see the same, sort of the same things, but you come up with many, many different things as you go along as a detective. get me wrong I, i've never seen this film and i should do because i'm a massive david lynch fan but it was it was a bit of a, a bit of a shock yeah. however I've, I've i've watched enough twin peaks to not be that shocked by david lynch anymore so well yeah the, the, the thing is about this film though you have to see on the production side of the film did you read much about that uh, I didn't. I know there's a documentary that I was trying to. I was trying to find the documentary into about Razorhead production, but I never saw it. Well, I'll tell, I'll tell you a little bit of the background. It took him nearly five to six years to make. It was his his piece for uh, his like finishing school piece, like they have in America, you know, for his yeah. university bit. So he got his mates together, and within that body of six years, Henry. The, the main cast member who plays a razor head didn't um, cut his hair, kept it in the mm. same style all that yeah. time. Dedicated man. Yeah. He, um, uh, David Lynch sold stuff. He had multiple jobs to pay for it. And it, even though the film only tossed roughly about 10, 10 grand, he made every bit of the film. Yeah. Every he, piece of the film. Like he's, the he's very much an everything. artist, isn't he? he oh, he's, he's an auteur. I think he, I think he loves doing the app side of stuff. I think. It's, I think it's probably more important because he's got a probably a really clear single directive of what he wants on the screen. He doesn't mess about. Yeah. Well, it's, he's obviously, <coughs> at this point, have you seen some of his earlier stuff than Eraserhead? No, Eraserhead is like 
pretty much the only other non-Twin Peaks thing I've seen of Lynch's part in June. If you go back, he's done a collection of short stories, which um, were short, short little films, what he put together while he was, you know, experimenting. Because he was mm. quite old when he went to university as well. He didn't finish uni until, like, I think it was, like, uh, late 20s, early 30s. Right. So between that, he obviously knew what he wanted to do. He did one film called Six Men Being Sick. And it's literally just men vomiting six times. <laughs> and then he did one which I'm sure Bob Fleming will love. It's just these uh, dwarfs walking around in a circle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Bob the bizarre world of David Lynch. Now, one thing I want to say just before we get into having a look of the film of it is <laughs> David Lynch in every interview has been asked, what's it about? Tell us the full story of what it's about. And he said, no, no, leave yeah. it to you. Whatever you want. One thing, one interview he did, I think it was 2000 or 2008, he did say, not a single person has got it right yet. Whether he's done that on purpose to keep it open. So whatever you interpret from this, that's that's your baby. That's yours. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's perfectly... It's a good stance for him to take because his films, I think, are very personal. They are expressions that he himself understands. And I think there's something to be said about the idea that you can't really know somebody else. You can pretend to be, you know, stand in their shoes for a while, but you can't really understand uh, a single person's view on something. No. And so I think it's probably a bit deliberate. Yeah, most definitely. And it's, it's the fact that, being a film with so many parallels, so it's like peeling back an onion. There's tons of layers of the film. Mm. Now, you could look too much into it, which I'm sure a lot of people do. They just go overboarding, scrutinising every little bit, where I'm <laughs> sure David Lynch, if he was there, would just say, no, I'd just place that there because that's the cheapest thing he had at the time. You know what I mean? But whatever you get from all of his films, that's yours. So mm. when you when I've watched reviews of this in the past, and I I had looked into this when I was in college as well, there's some steadfast, hard-faced bastards who just mm. say, no, this is it. It was all about sex, or it was all about suicide, or it was all about this, and they don't change from that view. Mm. Well, I, I keep myself flexible with David Lynch. Could be anything. Well, I, I think it's definitely something that he he's got a knowledge of, and I think he doesn't want you to... He wants people to try and sort of interpret what he's doing. Yeah. But each person is going to have a different interpretation. So if he stands there and says, no, it means X or Y. Yeah. Then that completely negates the viewer's like contribution to the whole art, the art form. Yeah. It's I like, think... it's like you've got all the, uh, you know, directors of auteurs. You've got um, Tim Burton is very much one. Terry Gilliam, all these people, they, they mm. put their own style on it and they give their own twist. Like Terry Gilliam, where he puts a lot of steampunk and, you know, Victorian-esque um, going on around in the background, which was before even steampunk was quite popular, wasn't it? Yeah. And he, yeah. It, that's that's his little stance in the world. But if you watch a David Lynch film, like we watched this one, he still has that same similar style throughout all his films. It's like, is this a dream or is this real? Is this the bit where someone's dreaming or not? He's got a uh, he's got uh, a language all his own. Yeah. He's got symbols all his own that he uses pretty much uniformly through all his films and TV stuff. Yeah. Um, and realizing what they are, you can inter- I think you can interpret to a certain extent what they are. Yeah. But it, it does color everything. He does like he, he very much is rooted in like the 1950s stuff that happened in his childhood. 
yeah. has coloured everything he's done. Uh, and all the stuff like the way people dress, the way the things look. The very 1950s, because that was... That was his so style. That was a time in which um, he perhaps did a lot of sort of becoming what he is. Yeah. And, and I suppose at the time as well, if you think of the influence <clears throat> within the 1950s, you had um, uh, like Philip K. Dick, you got mm. uh, George Orwell, you got some of these uh, great people who who might have influenced his view of the of the future. And also at the time when they made this film, um, he had his daughter, Jennifer, so could this be the parallel which he was that, oh my God, this baby's going to ruin my life? Because that's, that's sort of what bases this film. This, I mean, from what how I could interpret it and from looking at all the other, uh, proper people who understand film theory, what they've said about it, it does seem to parallel. I mean, it goes as far as the, the, um, the lead character's hairstyle. Yeah. That's uh, a poke towards David Lynch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does that in quite a few things. Where uh, in Twin Peaks, he's got um, he's got himself as a child. Yeah. Just the only thing that points him out is the suit and the hair, and that's exactly what Henry is. And it's that suit as well. Uh, Even to the point where the suit is is quite half masked. His his trousers are a bit too small. And Mm. you've seen David Lynch on interviews with exactly the same. He wears the white socks of his suit as well. So he pictures himself within his film. It's it's uh, it's autobiographical. This film. It must be, and it must be a lot to do with uh, the birth of Jennifer. The situation around it. I'm not 100% certain what it is, but I think around 1968 he was. I think he must have been 20, 21, 22, something like that. Um, his his girlfriend got pregnant, and he was, and the, and the child was uh, unwanted essentially. And you can see that this film is from the start. It's all about relationships with somebody he doesn't want, who doesn't really want to marry, but he ends up marrying, and having an unwanted child, and that's a really unwanted child. And I think Jennifer was also suffered for some, from some disabilities as well. So, yeah, so the parallel's there. Yeah. So, so as we look into it, um, let's take a bit of the synopsis, if we can break it down <laughs> in any way. <laughs> so it, it grandly opens with um, David Lidge's interpretation of, of sets, really. That's it. Yeah. Is yeah. The man is lying back. You see this strange world in the background and these, um, these sperm which is throughout the film, isn't it? And <laughs> he's got sperm, yeah. He's got this obsession with killing his sperm as well. He wants to kill it to not make <clears> another. <throat> well, there's there's one um, aspect of the film that you've got a tiny box, yes. which is a tiny worm, and that worm, I think, because as soon as all this happens and he ends up married with Mary, he puts that box away and he puts the worm in a, away in a box. That's his sexuality gone. He can't do anything. He's no longer a freewheeling bachelor. Yeah. He's now somebody who's obligated towards this baby and this relationship he's not really invested in properly. Um, and and all the scenes where you do see worms and, and things like that, <laughs> so you're trying to make sense of something that's probably nonsensical. <laughs> but there's a woman in the radiator, the the woman with the white hair, yeah, with the big puffy cheeks. The big cheeks. Yeah, yeah. Squashing the worms. Now, as far as I can tell, that radiator is... Because he's sort of dreaming when he's looking at that radiator. And that's his fantasising. And she is meant to represent 
perhaps something angelic because she sings about heaven yeah but also she might be death as well and she is crushing these is what i suspect is his libido yeah <laughs> you know I, what? I mean i've got i've got this different interpretation of what she could be but i definitely think the focus of her is his is is like his tv isn't it that's that's his sense mm. of viewing his warmness to the radiator it allows him to dream and in that dream he he sort of she's calling him like it it doesn't matter what you what you're going to do is he talking about in some people have named the aspects of he's contemplating even suicide he's contemplating yes. for giving this all up because it doesn't matter you know what i mean there is no in this point i don't think what david lynch is saying is that is a heaven and hell it's just a heaven whatever you're gonna do you can kill you can do this you'll be invited it's okay you can just come here and it, well, that seems to be his escapism well, that's how. That's why I think the, 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 that woman is death. Yeah. Because because she's both um, she's pretty in a way. She's all smiley and happy and, and like welcoming. Yeah. But she's also gross, and it, her cheeks are like abnormally sort of extended with some bad prosthetics, <laughs> that are presumably to make her look less enticing. And so you got you got the sort of. So death is both desired and also feared. Yeah. Uh, in the same way, and I think that because she's dancing on that little stage, and that little stage kind of represents his fantasy. Yeah. His his imagination. <clears throat> uh, that it may be that she exists or she doesn't exist. I don't know. I think that's presumably a fantasy. But yeah. So I think I think because she's singing about heaven and because she's um, uh, at the end of the film, just skip to the very fucking end. Yeah. Um. She embraces him and it all goes to white. That kind of is the the idea of like she is. It's it's the welcome embrace of death and the release from all these obligations that he's been under the entire film, the nightmare that he's been in the entire film. And it's like you said, it it goes to the white at the end being the uh, you know everybody's embodiment of what hell you know what heaven will be like. If you're it's dying, you see this great, great yeah. white, yeah, and therefore it's his journey towards the the inevitable ending because he can't think <clears> of <throat> any other way out of this situation. And with it, it start, starting off with the film, as as you see these these, it's hard because whatever point you start within the film, it's like what the hell's going on? But we do see that he <laughs> he says he's on vacation, he's walking through this dystopian. Uh, world and it looks it looks like like a mixture of a 1950s and maybe uh, some nuclear holocaust because that's referenced within the film yeah well, isn't it, it is on his wall the picture of the, the nuclear bomb and he's obviously grew up within a time of <coughs> cold war with the extremes and i think he's embodied sure. that within it in this film and the, we, we picture henry and then uh, he sees the lost like it's got like the seven deadly sins, isn't it? This film, mm, and it's yeah. his lust, which is his name. The woman across the across the hall, yeah. Yeah, but is that? I've read somewhere that someone's saying, "Oh yeah, she really likes him." But I've I looked at it in a different way that that's his fascination that he likes her. She yeah. looks at him a little bit odd. I think even the set scene further on, he's is all in his head. Well, I think that woman kind of represents uh, his. The thing that he lost when he had this baby and this marriage, which is the freedom and the sort of joyhood, bachelorhood. Yeah. Uh, and when when they have sex in that 
weird sort of I don't know what happens to his bed but it turns into a pool (laughs) she is looking over his shoulder at the baby and is really disgusted and and she's the representation and like later on in the film she turns up with a really kind of ugly old man yeah yeah and she and and so he is at that point of thinking well this baby makes me less um acceptable to her to, to the idea of like feminine and, and having it off with people than that old man so that baby is has basically taken me off the list yeah he's he's got to that point where he's thinking i am that far away from being ever close to any of these ladies around me yeah yeah <laughs> that's it it's, it's yeah. the end of his uh exciting youthful face yeah that's it his libido's gone yeah. <laughs> and at that point you have to think on when he was making the film you had um his brother-in-law at the time who plays the man in the in the planet the one who's probably yes. the junction yeah, yeah yeah well he was going out with sissy spacek yeah and she was um coming on the set quite a lot so we had a beautiful woman coming on the set all the time i wonder yeah. if you know, because it took so long to make this film, and it was only apparently 20 pages in the draft. He obviously changed bits and adapted bits as he went along, because he's had that he had baby Jennifer seeing beautiful Sissy Spacek coming on on the set and stuff. He might have been like, I'm adding this a, in. This a, is refle- a reflection. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think this is probably uh, a, a long time prior to the film being made. These events. Yeah, yeah. That he is sort of portrayed, but it's interesting. Like it, it's like. All his films are the same. They have no wasted space. Everything has a reason for being where it is. Yeah. That's why he, was, he works with the same like set designers and production uh, designer people. Because his vision is of... I mean, you can take any scene and you can um, look at all the items that are there in the scene and they will have meaning somehow. We don't always know what they are, but they will certainly have meaning for David Lynch. Yeah, and it's up to us to try and determine what they are. I, I, I think that's the that's the joy. It's a Rubik's cube, isn't films. it? His films yeah. are a Rubik's cube, and if you're successful to piece it together, which I don't think many people are, I think he enjoys that. That's the whole point. Is like try it. It's entertainment, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I um, it's him being honest and saying, you know what, whatever you get out of it is just is that's for you. Yeah. And then when when you're watching this narrative. You can see when he goes to visit her parents for the first time. Yeah. It's it's macabre. It's disgusting, well, but without being disgusting. Well, there's, there's, I've seen people mention that um, the whole point of something that's something is Lynchian it is an exploration of the macabre against the mundanity of life. Yeah. And that is what you see. You see something mundane as the meeting of a fa- uh, meeting the girl's family. But you're also seeing the macabre stuff of the, the tiny chickens and the blood coming out of them, and and the, t- and the constant sound of of the puppies sucking suckling um, mm. with the dog. Yeah, it like yeah, takes yeah. over the audio of the film, so that all they can hear with those moments. The the audio of the film is something to note as well. Yeah, it's there's no music in. Well, there is, isn't there? There's like a f- sort of well, it's a fairground music. Yeah, but yeah. that's that's notifying his imagination this is that's his that's his dreams and fantasies and the rest of it is just soundscapes it's the kind of background noise of kind of industrial background noise kind yeah. of thing soundscapes yeah when i was growing up when i watched this film for the first time i was only 17 and the sound you hear within this 
was a very similar sound to where I grew up. So where I grew up in Salford, behind where my mum and dad lived, was a bit of an industrial park. Mm. And so you heard this wrenching and cranking of the engines going off. I, I could sort of connect with it because it's that haunting drone, which I constantly heard because I also was quite near a railway track and you'd heard yeah. that. But interestingly enough, you also get that in the internal scenes inside the inside the house. Yeah. And I think what that is, because I was looking at uh, a, a guy called John Cage. He wrote uh, four minutes and 33, which is a piece of classical music that in, comprises no notes. Yeah. For four minutes and 33 seconds. Happens to be how long the performance lasts. It's, it's you know, it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be that long. But he he did that because he went into one of those echo chambers. Uh, not the echo chambers. It was one of those sound dampening chambers. Like, you know, so there's absolutely zero sound. No sound that you hear to comes back to you. Whoa. And all you can hear, it's, it's, got a, it's, got a, it's got a name. And I can't remember what it is. But it's a something chamber. Uh, and he was astounding because you hear your circulation. You also hear your heartbeat. You hear uh, just that's what you hear. So there is a constant hiss, a constant drone noise that in your life that you filter out naturally. Yeah. Until you're in that situation where that is the only sound there is. And I think that is what these soundscapes he creates is. It's the natural. It's the sound of the it's environmental sound. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It happens to be industrial at times, but also when he's in a room, it's just uh, sort of like it's a discordant sort of drone, isn't it? Definitely. And it's also, like you said, because it's an internal, external sound, it's the same sound. It it pitches with regards to what's happening Mm. on the screen when... When uh, the father starts to get a little bit rattled about his job, the the train seems to be thundering along. The, that soundscaping noise seems to thunder up, like to sort of like in modern films or other films would maybe add a classical store of more of a more uh, you know to to rise it up. But yeah. this just just seems to turn it up to level eleven. <laughs> yeah, and then it's it goes back down again. It's like when he's looking at the radiator and the radiator is suddenly backing up and you can yeah. hear it. So that's the rising pitch of that noise of the increased pressure. Um, yeah, it's, it's it makes listening to it very important that you put headphones on because it does mess with your mind. And I listen to this film with my headphones on and it's weird because I can like get distracted in films very easily. Yeah. And yet with this film, I was 100% focused for 100% of the time. And I've got this little check I do. When is the first time I looked down to see how long there is fucking left? Which is a constant. Yeah, yeah. And I did not do it once in this film, which is the first time ever. Wow. I mean, like, for instance, Terminator 2 I watched recently. Yeah. 29 minutes was the time I looked at, um, first looked. <laughs> uh, in most films, it's around a half an hour mark, but, uh, um, and, but that I just, I just carried on with the sound. It was all encompassing. It dragged you in. It was an amazing piece of film. It's sort of... Uh, it's, it's also f- fast. Even though it's slow, monotonous, um, how, how it moves, you know, how the story moves is slow. It's a fast-paced film. You watch yeah. it, it's it's over an hour, well over an hour long, an hour 20. There's a few few different cuts out there, depending on which one you watch. And But when you watch it, like you said, the time goes really fast because you absorbed mm. 
the sound just drones you in and because it's black and white and I, I used to I collect silent films um from from back when my granddad um mm. and I've continued to collect them. I love the silent films. There's some classic silent films like the cabinet of dr galagari i don't know if you've seen that and there's someone done by um salvador dali and then surrealistic approach yes. to life you can see that influence within these films i don't i don't yeah i do see that but i don't particularly think that he's surrealistic no i just i just think that um what he's doing it's it's not art house or anything it is literally an expression of uh, he, how he sees the world, how is like how life is to him. Yeah, that's why you get like um, uh, all the scenes. You get lots of scenes that are extended beyond what a normal editor would do. Yeah. So, for instance, there's one scene where he's in the lift, the doors are open, and you get that for twenty Long seconds. Long time. Yeah. Uh, there's a. I mean, I'm gonna completely keep referencing Twin Peaks for this, but there's an episode of Twin Peaks, in fact, the last episode, where there's a car journey. And I think it basically lasts about eight minutes, or maybe even 20 minutes, I can't remember. Just a car journey, nobody talking. Not, nothing's happening. That's it. You just see that, and everybody's like, well, this is a fucking waste of time. But it's not, because that's what life is. Yeah, yeah. He's not He's not shot in it for the, for the convenience of, like, narrative or film. He's, he's, he's letting pauses gap people don't answer could normal conversation uh isn't necessarily back and forth there are pauses and things and i, I just I, I love this film yeah i, love this I, film. I like <laughs> the i like the point of those delay in the lift and now this is how i got it is it was just it was just sort of you're feeling um uh, henry's pain you yeah i mean nothing is going fast enough for him Things are not happy enough for him. It's sort of like, you know, you meet these people in life. I'm, I'm sure you do the same as I do, where for them, nothing has happened. And the reason is, is because they haven't done it themselves. Yeah. It's up to you to actually do it. Now, he seems to be locked in this point and uh, blaming the anxieties in the future part of the film when he gets mm. the baby he, he blames it upon this baby to say well i could have been out shagging i could have been out doing this but i'm still living in this crummy little flat yeah he's in. you know what i mean well, that's also and and yeah you know by the side of his bed yeah right there's a mound of earth with a dead <laughs> tree in it it's awesome that that's <laughs> but, but what i think that represents in this case is that he is not doing anything with his life he doesn't know how to nurture anything he lives in a tiny little place in an awful part of town yeah uh, he doesn't know even know enough to put the earth in a flower pot for instance yeah so he's just not ready for life or uh, the responsibilities he's about to ensue ensure ensue un ensue yeah yeah that stuff <laughs> see what he's done to me this <laughs> but on that point where the with the with the um, you know the mound of earth and the yeah. way the grime the grime of the flat which he lives in, I I lived for about six years in London. I was partying a lot and I was working pretty hard as well. So you work hard, you party, and you enjoy life. Mm. But you don't see that with him. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's on, he's, he's on vacation. He's, still, he's at home. He's yeah. still not enjoying life, even though this is before he, he even finds out he's got a baby. But he's still he's still having troubles with his life he's don't know how to look after himself properly yeah. and 
it makes you think is he just living in this dream world himself which afterwards when he finds out about baby when he finds out about mary and she she pisses him off well she pissed everyone off her but <laughs> um mm-hmm. He's using that to say, well, you're spoiling my dreams. It's not spoiling yes. my life. You're spoiling my dreams. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. his life's less a pile of shit anyway, isn't it, really? Yeah. But he expects to be able to go on and do things, presumably. Yeah. Uh, and now that he's got these responsibilities, this this wife he doesn't really love and this baby that he didn't really want, that's that's the end of that. He's going to blame her. Yeah. That's why the only time he really smiles in the entire film is when he's looking at the radiator. Yeah. And, that's uh, his, his so escape. His own little escapisms, yeah. It's like feeling warm, feeling back into that, back into the womb state. You know, I'm warm, mm. I'm here. He ain't got no TV. He's got no. nothing else. He's got no Kindle. <laughs> it's just no, sad. He's true. got no books. There's no books there either. How bizarre. But he had the only picture on the wall, which I could make out, is the one of a nuclear holocaust. Well, that's also interesting as well. And again, Twin Peaks. Yeah. There's an episode of Twin Peaks where uh, the I think the analogy is that the... Uh, nuclear bomb basically opened up the world to a whole new load of evil yeah and it's a negative connotation i think it also might represent the fact that there is this is meant to be a post apocalyptic right. sort of world that he's in i assume and that's our reference to to get to that yeah, yeah. i could explain so, it because the, the streets where he lives are beyond a joke shit you know what I mean? And people are still trying to live. And when he goes to see the parents, they've got strange... They've got, like, pipes going through the high house, haven't mm. they? Pipes mean things to uh, Lynch as well. You can tell that as well from Twin Peaks. But yeah. actually, what they probably mean is the transfer of, like... Like, <laughs> I'm going to keep going off at tangents, Cliff, because it's like, this this film is nuts and things are occurring to me well, as we go. The, the trouble is but, with it, Phil, I, I just jump in, is, and the reason you have to go off in tangents is... You can't narrative the film. Try and no, explain this film to someone. You're like, uh, I can't. Exactly. <laughs> so I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> well, you see, you know, in the um, the lodge in Twin Peaks, the zigzag floor pattern. Yeah, yeah. This is. Oh yeah. <laughs> they have that's in the um uh in the lobby, of the oh, of, of the course, hotel. Yeah. It's the floor. And as far as I can tell, that's the tran- That's meant to. Uh, I think that I don't know whether it is, but to me, it's meant to mean the. Tr- it's stuff like television and cinema. It's the transmission of uh, entertainment, or it's the medium that oh, he's right. using. So I think that's that's why I, it's so many things. Like, it's like a sort of static interaction. What yes, you would have got in the old film, old TV and stuff. What he would yeah. have been. And right. when you get um, and when the lights flicker, there's a crackling noise that always appears in Lynch's stuff as well, because the interruption of that is yeah. is. Something that has also got some sort of meaning that I probably don't know. And it is <laughs> in that. One of the, some of the disturbing aspects of this film seems to show itself uh, within the first 15, 20 minutes. Where he goes to his parents' house and he's been asked to cut up the chicken, which mm. is about the size of a pigeon. And mm. uh, they're moving on his plate and it starts, yeah. starts pumping out like blood, what it looks like. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then the parent, the especially the mum, starts just losing control. It's like is that symbolising the birth of what that girl has had? You know. It's well, sim- I suppose I suppose the fact that it's so small is so difficult to carve. It seems almost meaningless that he's having to do this job, and he's been given this job by the father, whose whose arm doesn't work properly. <laughs> And he's got bad knees, and he's got weird knees. Yeah. yeah. So he's he's not the full ticket either. 
Yeah, and I think, <laughs> oh God knows, <laughs> who the fuck knows? I mean, but come it's, on. It's all, it's all like you said. It's the macabre and the mundane jammed into one. And that's life. That's what you're saying. That's yeah. life. That is life. It's more horrifying. Like, mm. like, um, if you go to rent this film out, I think, I think it's 15, isn't it? I think in some cases when it came out because it had late night showings and that's how it yes. became famous in America, along with um, you know a Pink Flamingo and all those uh, Rocky Horror films. I think it was an 18 when it first came out as well. well. I think it's 15 now. But if you look at it, it isn't. There's nothing on it which is as bad as some of the 15, some of the horror stuff are even at a 12 now. But yeah, the psychological but... effects is disturbing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the that, that baby when it gets. The baby that looks like what sort of baby is it? It's not is a it human like a baby. lamb or a rabbit. It looks like a sheep sheep yeah. fetus. Yeah. <laughs> Which, to be fair, he's never he's never confessed to tell people what it is, has he? Well, it's it's uh, it's, a, it's a baby, and she says it's 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 almost a baby, but it is a baby, yeah. but it's a deformed baby. And uh, yeah, <laughs> and when it turns into that massive version of itself and attacks him. <laughs> That's and it, yet again an expression of how this thing has overtaken his life. Uh, there's that scene. I've talked. Have I talked about this already? Because I'm <laughs> down to lose the plot. <laughs> but there's um there's a scene where the mound uh, with the tree sticking out of it. Yeah. Is sort of uh, that's his lack of ability to get shit done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. His front and centre stage in his dreams, because even in his fantasies, it's starting to affect him. And he's starting to lose the plot. He's behind a sort of a railing thing, and he's starting to get really nervous and things. And then suddenly his head pops off. Yeah, yeah. Like he's a replaced, court, like in a dog, isn't he? But it's, it's replaced, it's, it's popped off by the baby, yeah. which pops out of his neck. So he's, that's symbolising, of course, that like that baby's taking him over. And, yeah. and he, that's it. And then his head falls to the floor. The mound, which is his... Hold on, stay with me. I'm trying to work this out. The mound that is his uh, inability to do things bleeds everywhere around his head, and then it that kind of creates a portal where his head returns to the earth. <laughs> it's so bizarre. And then and then a boy picks his head up and takes it to the factory where obviously his head is made into an eraser head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making a show. I know, but it's, it's, when you talk, when you when you say it as a narrative piece, yeah. it's, it's more comedic. It, but what when you're it? watching, it's fucking yeah, exactly. shocking. It's like, oh my god, this is disturbing. And because yeah. disturbing events in the film aren't shocking to the people around it, the lad picks it up like it's a day-to-day thing and goes to get yeah. paid because he's brought another head to the eraser yeah. man. You've got the the woman next door who's uh, scantily dressed, and when she's bringing back the man with the disfigured face. She just seems just as simply as happy, like she's on ecstasy or something. Yeah. Like people look at you in like a madness to think you shouldn't be looking that way. The dad well, at the dinner table. It's not, it's not macabre to them. It's only macabre to us because we're yeah. not them. You yeah. see what I mean? Yeah. As far as I can tell. Their mental state. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. And the baby when it cries. Yeah. Oh my God. No, I've I've got, I've got two kids, and um, when a kid cries, it's it's freaking horrible, and it does grate you like flaming yeah. sandpaper in your head. Yeah. But the way they do the sound again with this, it increases, and to the one point where the baby seemed to be laughing at him. Yeah. 
where he's just laughing to take the piss out of him. Yeah. And he's he's winding himself up because really the baby's probably still crying, but he's that's, thinking you're taking that's a piss. When he's, that's when he sees the image of that massive of the baby really big. Yeah. Yeah. After it's laughing. Yeah. So yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a so there much. There are yet more parallels. I found quite a lot, yeah. more, a lot more parallels to Twin Peaks while I was doing this as well. When he's going to uh, the the house where Mary lives, yeah, there's the numbers are vertical on the side of the door, and Jeez. beneath it there's a, there's a diamond shape. Right. That's just like the lampposts in in Twin Peaks. There's like telegraph poles in Twin Peaks that have meaning because that's where the evil enters the world. Oh, you know so, what? That's a, that's, it's yeah. I haven't seen it completely as that because uh, I, I watched the Twin Peaks so so long ago. I need to yeah. rewatch it to watch that new one as well. What he did, but oh, you've I, not watched the new one yet. No, oh, I man. I wonder if they've even got the same numbers on some of the doors because he's yeah. probably the type because her number was two four one six and he was twenty six. Yeah. Like she's within his numbers. The four and a one, four one. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's loads of different things where people have looked into the meaning. Why has it got that number? Why has it got this number? I wouldn't be surprised if that number appears on Twin Peaks. I don't know for sure if it does, but it always appears kind of. It, that number does appear on things like that number appear on door ja- doors vertically as well on yeah. Twin Peaks. Yeah, out on Blue Velvet as well. Have you seen Blue Velvet? Oh, man, so long ago, I can't remember that. Well, her door, with the, when, and she lives in a bit of a, a grimy flat, doesn't she, as well? Yeah. Dennis Hopper's amazing in that, isn't he? You have to do one on that, it's superb. And the, her numbers are down the side again, of the door. It means something. Yeah, it definitely means something. It means something, <laughs> don't know what it means. I mean, that's not good for a review, but hey. <laughs> but then, then again... <clears throat> the amount of reviews I've heard about this film, and even growing up, and like I said, we, we touched on it in college as well, there's so many different interpretations of what it could be. Is it a sickening bad taste movie, and should be looked at as just that, which a lot of the reviews was when it came out to say it's sick, he's going, he's trying to be artive. But I don't think he is. There isn't the art no. thing there. It's dreamscape. It's... It's what you do when you take some LSD and it's gone bad, to be honest. It's, <laughs> it's an expression of... He doesn't like to use words. He doesn't like to... Exp- I mean, you've seen this in his interviews. He doesn't explain how things are. No. So why would he do that in his films? And His this, films, uh, in, you, you are free to interpret them. There is an interpretation there. And to be fair, Eraser Head may seem bonkers from start to finish, but if you've seen Twin Peaks and if you've understood a little bit more about David Lynch's works... You see enough parallels there to be able to work out a narrative of your own. Yeah, yeah. As far as, and it's not the sort of film you can go in there and not give it your hundred percent attention. You've got to give it hundred percent attention. You, you can't, you can't get up for a cup of tea. You're gonna have no. to stop it. You're gonna have to come back. You're gonna have to yeah. give it your full attention. I had to watch this without the kids running about. Believe me. But when, when you're watching it as well, is it's funny you should say that he he tells a story without the words. And again, harking back from uh, to silent films, which I love, is the fact that exactly. there's so yeah. much you have to convey on screen for that person to build their own narrative. If you're not saying much, I don't think there's that much words. What go on if you put them all together probably one a4 sheet of paper there's nothing on there i don't think i don't think the the words are important no the words aren't important to this film and it's it's a spectacle as well watching it yeah it is but if you go in there thinking you're going to be watching 
name a crappy film director. Michael Bay. Yeah. If you're going to watch a Michael Bay film, you're going to have to get it spoon-fed to you. Yeah. There is no spoon-feeding in this. No. You have to serve yourself the buffet. You're coming coming away looking on the internet what's it about. And if people say they know what it's about, well, even even Mr. Lynch says no one knows yet. Yeah. It's whatever whatever you get from it. Well, from this, uh, some of the people who absolutely loved this film, again, John Waters, who promoted this, and apparently David Lynch said without him, he wouldn't have got into the uh, you know the midnight showings. And one big one was um, Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks yeah. loved it. And from this, he got the job of doing uh, Elephant Man as well. Yeah, I think Mel Brooks was is a great supporter of David Lynch's stuff. He's helped him financially on a couple of things. Yeah leapt in there because like this film they didn't want to make they didn't want to let it be made his synopsis of this film that he presented to the the film institute that he, yeah, he was yeah, shooting that they weren't interested in doing it because i can't i can't imagine it was the best sell ever no however there's a people that knew him like the, i think the guy you said is like threatened to resign if they didn't like let him make this film yeah I think that's why it took seven yeah. years yeah because eventually he had to force that force them because I think it's important to to give the the this sort of vision scope to work itself out, and it's not an easy to watch film. No, it's no. not easy to understand. It's it's certainly can, I don't you, feel as I understand it. No, you can feel the pain of mm. the, you know, when you understand that the guy took nearly six six beyond years to make this. How much passion? How much of your life have you, has he yeah. given for this film and the actors as well? And the people, like you said, who continue to work with him in, in the future as well. The amount of dedication for him to sell this story. So yeah. that makes you think, when someone says, oh, it's just a fly-by-night, it's just a silly film, it's just daft. No, the guy took fucking six years the to craft ob- it. Absolute to, opposite of that, yeah. yeah. So this is yeah. a perfect piece of art form. If you want to create media, you want to be a film student, this is one of the films to watch. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not one of those things, but I presume so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in fact, he liked to he liked to have the same people around him for many of his films. Like he worked with um, Carl McLachlan on lots of films because once you find somebody who takes the direction the way he wants it taken, yeah, you can understand up. your vision. Like Mary yeah. Mary appeared in uh, Twin Peaks. Yeah. As the wife of uh, Major Briggs. Right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and various people have appeared in other films like Mulholland Drive. The, the they all sort of like there's a connection between Laura Dern appears in a few of them and you know that sort of thing. He definitely keeps and Henry appears in Twin Peaks as well, didn't he? Does he? Yeah, he's one of the first people to uh, think ring in the body. He looks well old in it now. He's not. Fuck! Have I just had my mind blown? Is he the guy that says? Um, they, they've killed him. Yeah, that's in plastic. That's, that's it. fucking him. That's him, man. He <laughs> <laughs> looks completely different, but then again, you, you're talking. Now that after. you say it, I completely recognise him. Yeah, is his fod? He's got a flick. He's got a bigger fod than me. me <laughs> Holy crap! That's yeah. blown my mind. You got to go look back now on it. <laughs> I am. I'm going to do Twin Peaks all again. I've only just recently finished it, but I'll do it again. <laughs> Oh man, that's that's immense. Thank you, Cliff. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> so you get you get this film, and I cannot 
push it out there to as many people as you can. But a lot of people are quite snooty. They don't want to watch a black and white film. Well, if you don't want to watch a black and white film, you don't know films. Most of the films now, even Quentin Tarantino has said, is based on those films he watched from the 60s and 70s he was watching in the video store. You know what I mean? Stanley Kubrick took love this film he even said it's mm. one of his best films he's ever watched before and look at Stanley Kubrick's work it's full of symbolism within that as well yeah and, not uh, as absolute as Lynch I don't think no well no. it's funny thing about Lynch as well is that he, if you see the things he's done yeah he's got steadily less he, he's still I don't know how to express it properly but he's got less weird as yeah. time's gone on yeah he still has the same things in it but he's made it more accessible to people yeah, that's right. Like I saw a review of Mulholland Drive, which says, yeah, it's the same, but as Razorhead, but it's a lot more accessible to other people now. Yeah, I so he's his craft sort of has gone down that route. He's gone like the inverse of usually they start off like just doing normal stuff and get experimental when they get famous and older. Exactly. All the way around. Well, a lot of people start off because the the production and the people behind funding it more or less say, this is how we want it. This is what we mm. want to see. This is the actors we want in it. And, they, you know, I mean, they, it goes to the test audience and they have to recut it. But this first piece, The Razorhead, it's sort of, uh, was his, what's his name? Uh, Kevin Smith, Clerks. Yes. Yeah, that was his. Funded it himself. Exactly. That's all him. This and he is was, all uh, him. I think well, the problem, the difference with Kevin Smith is Kevin Smith films got steadily shitter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Clerks is fantastic. Mallrats was okay, and then it just goes a bit down exactly, after that. But it, you're not sure is he just doing it, and he only had that 15 minute of fame. You know what I mean? Andy mm. Warhol. That was his. That was his one thing, and that was it done. Because he yeah. just regurgitates the same thing. Where David Lynch, even though he still keeps the dreamscape, still keeps that. What on earth's going on? Is this real or not? But he has different narratives. He's got a lot of different stories to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Just gotta, I've just got to watch more David Lynch films now because <laughs> just to sort of test out my theories. I tell you, you, come on again and we can call ourselves the Lynch mob. He's only done, what is it, 10 or 11 <laughs> films. That's not going to take long to get through. <laughs> is that going to be like, like a, lot, a little offshoot of the deep dive? Might be the Lynch mob. <laughs> <laughs> deep dive Lynch mob. And we could do one for Cronenberg as well. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> No, <laughs> it's already had enough work. That's just like <laughs> he, he, the, goes, uh, he goes. I do, I do all the Lynch films. Without a doubt, I would happily do that. Yeah, I, I, I love the Lynch films. I've wa- I have watched all of the Lynch films, even the short stories. Now, leaving this podcast, if you've got some time tonight, do go on YouTube. They're all on there. They're free, and uh, look at some of these um, old short stories. Yeah, you can see the style what he was trying. See if he's experimenting. Are to try and get this film in place. Yeah. It's brilliant. The grandmother. I really liked her role in this film. Oh, it's like... What's, it's, what's, what's that all about, eh? It's frightening. It's, it's like, is she dead? <laughs> That's what I wrote. Is she dead? <laughs> I've she's just... not puffing on that cigarette. And she's like, having to, like, her daughter's having to move her arms around. <laughs> well, did, I stir did... the... T- Salad, yeah. Do you remember the, uh, I think it was BBC, quite disturbing Cold War uh, film, Threads? Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. And there's a Take bit in that where there's a woman feeding a dead family. Oh, yeah. And oh, that God. reminded me so much of this, like, she just wants to keep them alive. And that seemed to be about her. It's like, <laughs> psycho, just keeping that person there. She doesn't do anything. She's just... <laughs> she does no expression, no nothing. You don't even see her breathing, to be she fair. She doesn't breathe. Because she sticks a cig in her mouth and he's still no smoke as well. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
Well, I think within the film, it's you know, it's sets. You've got death. It's life itself. It's it's his it's his life. It is his life. That's probably why he won't admit to the full story of it. And I think maybe also the black and white nature of it is because it's it's about his past and um yeah and and there's lots of yeah there's an idea that when you look back at uh, your past you don't really see it in color no you do see your past in sort of in a sort of monochrome it's like what do you dream in like some people can actually know what they're dreaming is they're dreaming in color or they're dreaming or not and there's a there's a few books of study about that. My dreams, I have no idea. No, I'm too mashed. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, coming to the, the end of the pod, and a new thing what I've added in for my podcast oh, is, what song of you know would complement this film for your own credit out sequence? It'd be Nine Inch Nails. Very good, yeah, yeah. Because of the Lynch influence of yeah. that, Lynch um, has done Nine Inch Nails. Might as well be Hurt. Oh, good one. Good yeah. One. Very good. And he seems to be in a lot of hurt and pain of that as well. Well, that's, that's <laughs> it. Yeah, I think, plus, I can't think of any other Nine Inch Nails uh, song titles right now. On the spot like On this. the spot. I put everyone on the spot. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I came up with an answer. What do you want? So I'm going to say goodbye yeah. now to John. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much, mate. Come back again. And it's hurt for everyone. Thank you.